This is Africa Digest. Good afternoon and welcome to Africa Digest. You're listening to Channel Africa from an African perspective. We're broadcasting to you from Johannesburg, South Africa, and we're available on www.channelafrica.co.za. My name is Samora Mangesi in studio with Jwalani Tulono Sihlezuma as well as Neto Chimani. Some top stories on the show at this hour. Nigeria prepares itself against uh, any possible breakout of the coronavirus. On the other hand, the World Health Organization is meeting again today to decide whether to declare the epidemic as an international public health emergency. And Lesotho's Prime Minister, Tom Tabani, says he would retire as pressure mounts on him to step down. We'll also have your business as well as sporting news a little bit later on in the hour. But right now, let's start off with getting a quick update from Zwalani Tula with regards to the news headline, news uh, bulletin, rather. SABC News. Independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Thank you, Samora. Good afternoon. Bomb experts have conducted a search at private doctor's offices in the capital Nairobi following a bomb scare. Nairobi area police boss Philip Ndolo says a notice dropped near the building early in the day prompted the search. Reports say that the note was claiming that the building would be bombed at any time. Officials from the anti-terror police unit cordoned off the area near the building and only residents were being allowed in. Kenya is on high security alert following several militant group Al-Shabaab attacks at the beginning of the year. The Prime Minister of Mali, Bobo Sisse, has announced plans for a major military recruit, recruitment drive in order to address the growing threat from jihadist groups. Sisse says the plan was to hire 10,000 new soldiers in the coming months. In recent months, dozens of soldiers have been killed by Islamist militants linked to al-Qaeda and the Islamic State group. 20 members of the security forces died over the weekend during an attack on an army camp. The South African Human Rights Commission in the Western Cape Province has laid charges of intimidation against a refugee leader being sheltered at the Central Methodist Church in Cape Town. J.P. Balos made death threats against Commissioner Chris Nissen earlier this week. The foreign nationals are being housed in the church building after being evicted from a pavement outside the UN Refugee Office in the CBD last year. Balos is believed to have threatened to kill Nissen before the start of a city of a city of Cape Town court application to have the foreign nationals removed from the pavement near the church. Nissen says he's not taking the threats lightly. He intimidated me, not only now, and given the violent nature, and given what he's done in the past, and secondly, the threat on my life. I take that very serious, the commission takes it very serious, and therefore, but therefore the commission said that we will take a step back, we'll monitor, but we won't close our doors on any refugee or asylum seeker. Anybody that needs our help, Police in the Indian capital, Delhi, have arrested a man who opened fire on protesters who were demonstrating against a new citizenship law which which critics say discriminates against Muslims. The BBC's Jill McGivering has the story. The identity of the man isn't yet clear, but television footage shows him walking down the road, waving his gun and pointing it at protesters who were gathering to march. He reportedly shouted, here's your freedom. A student was shot in the arm when he opened fire. Just two days ago, a man was overwhelmed by protesters in a different part of Delhi when he brought out a gun. 
tensions are high, with some angry about the government's controversial citizenship law. Some BJP figures have openly expressed hostility towards them, calling them traitors and a threat. And finally, 6,000 people have been prevented from disembarking from a cruise ship which has docked near Rome. Medical staff are checking a Chinese woman on board who's shown symptoms of the coronavirus. The virus has now killed 170 people in China. However, some media organizations have put the number of cases at more than 7,000 in mainland China. The BBC's Mark Lowen has the story. The Costa Smeralda cruise ship has docked in the port of Civitavecchia near Rome, but the 6,000 passengers on board have not been allowed to disembark while a Chinese woman traveling with her husband is checked by medical staff. The cruise company has told the BBC that the woman, a 54-year-old, reportedly had a fever raising fears that she had contracted coronavirus. She and her husband are believed to have flown from Hong Kong to Milan on the 25th of January to join the cruise, which went on to Marseille, Barcelona and Mallorca before returning to Italy. Headlines at 5.30 for Channel Africa. I'm Cholani Tulo. SABC News. Independent and impartial. From an African perspective. The reported outbreak of a new infectious disease, the coronavirus in China, has drawn great attention amongst Nigerians, a nation which has regular and very robust business contracts with China to set up mechanisms to guide citizens from being infected. The idea is that should there be a case of infection, there would be adequate method of quarantine to stem the virus from spreading into the larger society. Our correspondent in Nigeria, Collins Atohengbe, says Abuja relies on its Uh, experiences in combating the Ebola and the 2003 SARS virus to be able to tackle any case of coronavirus if it does get into its shores. In 2014, Nigeria faced a serious possibility of the deadly Ebola epidemics wreaking havoc among the people. But for the timely intervention of relevant government agencies and support groups, it would have been a tough battle to combat. With the emergence of the coronavirus strain in China and the reported rapid spread due to its high contagious nature, Nigeria is once again faced with making arrangements to keep the disease out of its community. Speaking with journalists in Abuja, the Minister for Health, Osage Haniri, confirms the possibility of the virus entering the country from foreign sources and urged stakeholders to play their part in the preventive measures. There is high-level interministerial consultation in multi-sectoral committee to scale up surveillance and vigilance to detect suspicious cases and ensure containment at all points. The Ministry of Health hereby requests all parties and stakeholders to apply existing standard operating procedures and airlines in particular are reminded of their obligation to comply with the protocols for reporting passengers who fall ill or look ill on board so as to activate response plans on arrival of the affected aircraft. As the events unfold, we can see that the risk of importation is present for all countries. However, the Ministry wishes to assure Nigerians of the capacity to detect, assess, and respond to these and other public health threats. In continuation of the collective efforts to keep coronavirus at bay, Dr. Chinwe Ochu of the Center for Disease Control says Nigeria has the experience of controlling infectious viruses previously, and that would be a plus in the current situation. The beautiful thing that we have to be thankful for is that this is a system that has been tested by other infectious disease outbreaks. The 2014 Ebola outbreak 
in Nigeria um, tested the system that was very new then, the Nigeria Center for Disease Control, and uh, fortunately we were able to contain that uh, infectious disease. So we've been able to set up good surveillance systems that um, we've used for all the other infectious diseases of public health importance. And these um, systems are there in our, in our points of entry countries. So with this coronavirus outbreak, we have heightened, uh, heightened surveillance at the points of entry. So our airports screen people as they come in, those with fever, cough, or signs of respiratory tract infections uh, will be detected at that point of entry. With the checkered attitude of some who may think the chances of the virus entering Nigeria is far-fetched, Dr. Joe Onigbinde, specialist in infectious disease management, says it will be self-delusion to hold such views. I want to disagree that is, uh, the chances of getting it in Nigeria is very low. I don't think so. Despite the lockdown you have in China, you still have a lot of Nigerians that are traveling to China uh, doing businesses and so So they can import it as it were. So I don't think we should let down our guards. If we have not had any preparation, it is time we started it. Because uh, the world is a global village now, mm -hmm. so anything can happen. So I think we need to step up our surveillance system because coronavirus is very wide. It could be as simple as common cold, you know, it can easily spread. Taking into cognizance the rate at which people mingle with each other, especially traveling across the globe, a former consultant with the World Health Organization, Dr. Bamigboya Folabi says, there is imminent risk with the speed at which the virus spreads, which calls for heightened surveillance. And right now, this disease is spreading like a wildfire. Actually, it's, it's similar to the uh, severe acute respiratory syndrome, SARS, that we had in 2002, 2003. And um, the, the, the risks now is the widespread, the, the speed at which it is spreading. And, you know, globally, people are traveling now, you know, from China to Lagos, from China to Ghana, from China to South Africa, just like that. And it has to be contained. We have to man all the airports in Nigeria. We have to screen everybody that's coming from that area. The level of spread coupled with the fact that even at incubation stage, coronavirus can be contagious. Dr. Chinwe Ochu says anyone suspected to be infected will be quarantined and tested at the various facilities available at the entry points. Given the magnitude of this uh, outbreak, once the suspected case is detected at the airport, we have a national reference laboratory that has the capacity to test for these viruses. So the person will be isolated at the airport and sample will be taken uh, and tested just to ensure that uh, we're able to detect any case that comes into the country early enough to activate our response system. So I don't think there's really any cause for alarm. Uh, all we need to do is to play our own part because health is everybody's business. Further development in this direction has come out in the form of the cooperation reached between the Lagos state government and the Chinese embassy in Nigeria to the width that all Chinese entering Nigeria will be quarantined for 14 days and tested before they are allowed to enter the city of Lagos. Meanwhile in Abuja, some Chinese sales outlets have been discovered to have lots of raw meat including seafood with irregular expiry dates of up to 10 years in advance in stock. Should there be any reason to be apprehensive because of that? The feeling is all yours to decide what is possible. From Lagos, Nigeria, I am Collins Nosato, before Channel Africa News.
The World Health Organization is meeting again today to decide whether to declare the coronavirus epidemic an international public health emergency. This is after China confirmed that another 38 people have died from the virus, making the total number of deaths 170, with cases in every province and region in the country. In an attempt to contain the outbreak, Chinese officials last week began sealing off highways and closing bus and subway systems in Wuhan, the city where the virus was first detected. Lockdown orders have since been expanded and now apply to more than 50 million people across 17 cities. South African expert Perpetua Mbali is a blogger and speaker based in Shanghai, China, and she spoke to Channel Africa's Economy so to show, share her experience during this time. I'm safe and I'm doing everything that I've been advised to, mm. to do to stay safe. Now talk to us a little bit about that, Mbali, in terms of uh, the advice that you've been getting in terms of, of staying safe um, amid um, the panic that has been caused by this uh, coronavirus. Yeah, there's quite a big panic. And I think, I mean, um, it's generally warranted, but I think on the ground, if you just do what you're supposed to do, you should be okay. Um, so these are the general guidelines that we've been given by the health authorities. And one of them is just to stay indoors as much as possible Mm. so that you're not increasing your risk of, like, getting infected or infecting others. And so most of us are advised to just stay indoors, go outside if you need to get water, if you, you know, if you need to get to the hospital. Um, And if you just, you can can actually take a walk. That's Mm. okay. Mm. But if if you're wearing your mask and you're washing your hands regularly, you should be fine. Now, in terms of the staying indoors, you know, that's uh, quite a tall order for a lot of people because staying indoors in Bali also means that um, some people are unable to work and um, so forth. So tell us a little bit about your experience. I mean, I've been following you on social media and I've been seeing some of the things yeah. that you've been getting up to, you know, trying to stay sane, if anything, indoors. Yeah, so yeah. Talk, to us about, <laughs> talk to us about that experience and really what the implications of that are, especially for uh, the working class. I'm going to speak specifically about the expat community, right? A lot of us are here because we are here to work. Um, there are teachers here that are teaching English. There are engineers. There are people running businesses. And during this time, nobody's able to do any of, mm. uh, any of those kind of things. Mm. But what has happened is um, the employers have been advised to, to pay us while we are home. So there's no impact in terms of our income from mm-hmm. that perspective. Mm. But I think the biggest impact that people are feeling is like their sanity. People are anxious. People are like, oh my gosh, am I going to be okay? People are Mm. feeling claustrophobic and all of that. And on the ground, there are like WeChat groups and kind of support groups available virtually um, to be able to support each other. Mm -hmm. As well as you can actually go out. Like Mm. if you look at the infection rate, so I live in Shanghai. And in Shanghai, there are 24.4 million people living here. And in Shanghai, there's only been one death and 101 cases reported, um, let's say, up to, like, uh, let's say, last night's figures. Mm. So that means if you are doing what you're supposed to do, you can actually meet someone for a coffee. You can go for a walk. You just need to be careful, Mm. you know. Um, You can meet uh, someone in your home and have dinner. It's not, like, absolutely 
Yeah, so but I think it's a matter of, of the panic. You need to be careful. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Everyone is panicking yes, and, and everyone think... wants to be rather safe than sorry. Now, Mbali, you've spoken about, you know, the, the, the expat community, South Africans or Africans um, in, in China at this time, just coming together and mm. forming that sense of community. So what's the mood like mm. in terms of, you know, the anxiety that you speak of? Um, and I'm sure that a lot of you have been getting calls, you know, to come back home. So, um, you know, what have been your thoughts around those calls? Just share with us and put some of the people at ease who are extremely panicking at this time. I think there's no need for a major panic. Um, everybody's pretty much okay. And we're doing the best that we can to stay sane and to stay healthy. In the event that the situations um, escalate, then obviously we'll do what's needed. But I think the safest thing for people to do now is to stay home, to stay fit, to stay safe, wash their hands, to do what they need to um, get to the goals, the planning, the vision boards, the cleaning the house, whatever it, whatever they couldn't get to because they were not going to work. Mm. But I think there's no need for like an over-exaggerated, sensationalized panic that is being um, perpetuated by, by media, yeah. you know. I think for uh, as long as we're staying safe, we're staying indoors, and we're looking out for each other as much as possible, then we should be okay. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, Mbali, um, as I mentioned earlier, the World Health Organization is meeting today um, uh, to decide on whether mm-hmm. they should declare uh, the coronavirus epidemic an international public health emergency. Now, in terms of mm-hmm. the communication, you know, um, uh, two people in Shanghai or different parts of, of China, of course, at this time, are you happy with the kind of communication that you've been getting from officials um, in your city specifically in terms of what to do and what to look out for and, of course, just the advice that you've been getting around what to do during this time? I think I'm absolutely satisfied because uh, we're getting information directly from the Health Bureau and from the local news um, channels as well as from our employers. So, for example, our employers will send us an update every day, which they get directly from the authorities, in case, because there's also a lot of um, misinformation going on. So it's important to protect yourself from that kind of misinformation and make sure that you're getting the correct kind of information from the right sources. Um, otherwise, you'll find yourself just like insanely um, anxious. Yeah, yeah. So um, the information is reliable and it is consistent. It's daily. Um, it's you know, and yeah, everybody's doing the best that they can to sure. make sure that everybody is being advised accordingly. Do we go to the line? And that was Perpetuum Bali, blogger and speaker on the line from Shanghai, China, talking to Zikona Miso. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. What we want to achieve is a healthy and vibrant economy, which can ensure full employment to our people. The government concurs with the views of the Black Economic Empowerment Council report that it is now necessary to make our policies on Black Economic Empowerment more explicit. Last May, I asked constituencies at NETLEC to discuss youth employment incentives. I'm pleased that discussions have been concluded and that agreement has been reached on key principles. We are on an ambitious drive to industrialize, to attract investment, and to create more jobs for the youth of our country. They don't have jobs. Thanks. 
tried looking for a job for it's a year and a half now. The challenges were experience and the, the level of education which I have. Channel Africa. Welcome to Change Your Game on Channel Africa, the African perspective. We are coming to you from Johannesburg, right here in South Africa. I'm Asanda Beda, your host. Change Your Game, the program that promotes open discussion and social dialogue as we highlight real issues in the African entrepreneurship ecosystem. Trevor Mumba now joins us in studio to talk about his entrepreneurial and personal journey. Welcome to Change Again, Trevor. Thank you so much. Um, it's an honor to be here. Palesa Mukubong, who's a designer. Welcome, Palesa, to Change Your Game. Thank you. Your role at the fourth annual Fashion Without Borders event? I just know that I need to arrive and, and, <laughs> okay. and do my part and do it really, really well. South African government must find a way to decriminalize and regulate illegal miners, otherwise known as Zamazamas. This is the view of civil society organization Action Aid South Africa. The organization launched a report earlier today which focuses on how the sector can be used to address the levels of unemployment in the country. Zamazamas have been and continue to be criminalized and labeled as thieves who are contributing to the bleed in revenues that the mining sector and the economy is experiencing. To discuss this report further, we're joined on the line by Sfiso Zaza, Manager for Extractives and Mining at Action Aid South Africa. Uh, Mr. Zaza, thank you very much for joining us. Good, uh, good evening, uh, Samora, and good evening to your listeners. Let's, let's start off. Tell us a little bit more about the report and its key findings. So the report that we did uh, was essentially about uh, trying to, 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 to obtain an in-depth insight into the challenges facing the Zamazamas and in the artisanal mining sector and find possible solutions for consideration in the strategy to create a strategic framework to advise the government to ensure that uh, the policies are formulated to regulate and decriminalize and formulate this uh, uh, this industry. So some of the findings, like uh, we, we, we worked in, we, it, it's an evidence-based. We went to Kimberley, we went to Clarkfontaine, which is in Gauteng, as well as, um, as uh, Carltonville. We managed to interview about 1,200 of the Zamazamas, and we got some patterns out of it, which uh, uh, endorsed what we've been saying for a very long time, that this industry has a potential of creating employment this industry, the, the, the trade on its own, contributes to, to the livelihoods of the people that are in it as well as their families. Uh, also, there's, there's, there's this notion that um, most uh, Zamazamas are illegal, are, are illegal immigrants. However, our, start, our, our, our research has proven to us that only 30% of the people that we spoke to are, Zamaz- are, from, are, from, are, are, are not from South Africa. And 40% out of that is from Lesotho, and then we've got the neighboring countries. So then that on its own shows you that um, artisanal mining is not so much of lucrative for the local people, but it's a mere effect of putting bread on the table. It is lucrative for the people because there are different layers 
we've seen artists now mining. There are those who, who, who mine the crowns, and there are those who, who buy us. Those, those are buyers, and there's also bulk buyers, and then there's also exporters. So we are looking at in the mere fact of a human rights perspective uh, to be given an opportunity to, to, to work and earn a living and earn a livelihood and earn dignity. Now, illegal mining takes place in the, spa- uh, in the space of large-scale uh, formal mining, which presents a problem for private mining companies, as they perceive this as encroachment, uh, uh, perceive this encroachment as a channel where revenue is being lost. How do you respond to this? Look, Samora, it doesn't only happen in uh, uh, my current large-scale mining. Uh, most of uh, the research points to us that it's uh, most of the uh, unused or derelict mines that uh, as Amazonas uh, know the shafts, they know uh, the reserves that are there, they know the residuals, they they know actually what's what's in there. Um, with, with with regards to your question, to say that it's 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 a threat to uh, large scale mining. I mean, it's time to share because the economy cannot create employment opportunities anymore. Large-scale minings have been benefiting from minerals for a very long time. And government has been trying to bring about transformation in the industry with policies such as the mining charter. Now we are saying to add on to the transformation that government wants to create, let us decriminalize, formulate, and regulate Zamazamas so that we are able to contribute. Because the reason why large-scale mining are are, are complaining about this, according to us, it's a battle of the needy and the greedy. Because those who are needy are the ones that uh, fork a living, uh, get 500 grand a day to put bread on the table. These are the people that we've spoken to. In the meantime, one thing is not said about the large-scale mining because have you ever asked yourself, Samora, if there's ever a large-scale mining that has been charged for possessing minerals that come from Zamazamas? Mm. Unheard, that's unheard of, but it ends up in the formal economy. Mm. And uh, what has been the response from the Department of Mineral Resources when you engage the department around this issue, especially when it comes to regulating Zamazamas? Um, the department is moving towards listening to us because right now um, the policy uh, they were here today when we when we launched the report and it has changed the, the perception has, has shifted um, because now they are able to engage they are able to come to such gatherings so we hope that it's not only a lip service from them because we're going to be sitting on them. As, as a result, this is not the only time that we've been speaking about Zamazamas. It goes, we've conducted workshops, we've conducted conferences, we've attended parliaments, uh, portfolio committees to speak about this. Now everything is up to them. And um, if you remember that um, uh, the president in the State of the Nation said that mining is a sunrise um, uh, in South Africa and that um, their slogan has been say, saying that together we can do more. We have done our part. Now it's them to do their part. All right. And uh, I think that we can actually wrap it there. Um, going forward with regards to these conversations, what do you think that it's most important for the public to know uh, when it comes to the work that you guys are doing, and especially when it comes to this report? 
Look, one thing that has been happening in South Africa and beyond is that Zamazamas has been there and Zamazamas will always be there. There are countries like uh, Zimbabwe, Tanzania, Ghana, Uganda, who are shifting towards creating policy if they haven't already. So now, with our history in mining, it's, it's, it's time that we really look into that because, um, I mean, the, the, the unemployment rate is, 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 is staggering high. And uh, Zamazamas, there is an informal economy within the Zamazamas, but they are not taxed. So if, if, if this trade was to be formalized, then they would be paying taxes, then we would be knowing exactly who's there, then we would be able to rope in a, 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 a Council of Geosciences and all other like-minded people within the industry to say, this is what's needed, this is what needs to be done, and it's just that government needs to employ a political tactic towards this and accept it as it is, because it won't go away. Zamazamas have been criminalized, Zamazamas have been charged, but the trade keeps going. All right, Sviso, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much, Samar. And that's uh, Sviso Zaza, Manager for Extractives and Mining at Action Aid South Africa. Very big thank you to him for joining us yet again. The time is now 17.28 Central African time. Right after this, we're going to cross on over to the news desk where Joelani Tulo is standing by to let us know what is the latest with regards to the news headlines. Hello and welcome to Channel Africa, the African Perspective. We broadcast from Johannesburg in South Africa and our main aim is to provide you with news, views, knowledge and entertainment from Africa to Africans and listeners from around the world. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchemwa. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Diana Wanyonye in Mombasa. For Channel Africa, I am Kumbara Munjarere in Johannesburg. Channel Africa, Kinshasa, Jean-Noel Bamweze. Reporting for Channel Africa from Zambia, I am Hilda Kekelwa. Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspective. SABC News, independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Good afternoon. Making headlines. Bomb experts have conducted a search at a private doctor's office in the capital Nairobi following a bomb scare. The Prime Minister of Mali, Bobu Sisse, has announced plans for a major military recruitment drive in order to address the growing threat from jihadist groups. And finally, the South African Human Rights Commission in the Western Cape province has laid charges of intimidation against a refugee leader being sheltered at the Central Methodist Church in Cape Town. For Channel Africa, I'm Jolani Tulo. SABC News, independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Lesotho's Prime Minister Tom Tabani announced he would retire as pressure mounted on him. Uh, this is as a result of allegations of his involvement in the murder of his former estranged wife, Lipolelo. Tabani received an invitation by the Deputy Police Commissioner to present himself for questioning regarding the crime. His current wife, Maesia Tabani, is still on the run with police having officially issued a warrant of arrest. 
Pressure has also been mounting from Tamani's own political party, the All Basut Convention, as they accused him of being a threat to the nation and further failing to fulfill his mandate. Benjamin Mushatama spoke to academics Professor Begim Gomezulu and Professor Holo Nyane. It is uh, quite a mixture of a number of factors. And it has been long uh, coming, as you recall, that um, the problem around the resignation of the Prime Minister started with issues around his age, his inability to manage government affairs. For it, It's been a matter that has been coming for, for a year or so. And also that he has allowed his current wife to manage or micromanage public affairs. And then up to now, when it is culminating with the revelations of issues around the matter of his former wife. So it, it's quite a mixture of stuff. And also the internal politics within the All Basoto Convention, where you would recall that the, the, the committee had, had also uh, called for his resignation because of his inability to manage the internal strife within the political party. But I would say the blow that broke the colonel's backbone was the letter that was sent by the commissioner of police to him to come and respond to matters related to the matter of, of his former wife. Prof, with that being said, he announced his resignation uh, last week, but days later, we still haven't seen an official resignation or a handover of power. Uh, what would you think is causing this? Maybe do you think it's because of a leadership vacuum or the factional battles within the old Basutu convention? Well, I think we must put it proper to record that uh, actually he hasn't uh, resigned as he had, constitutionally speaking. What he has communicated to to Basotho and the world is that he intends to retire. And his reason, uh, as he communicates it, is that it's because of old age and that he no longer has strength to manage public affairs. So he is saying to the nation and, and the world at large, the actual date for his resignation will be managed uh, within the, the political party, which is the All Basutu Convention. So all in all, he, he has not provided the date. But, but uh, looking at it much more closely, one would say that it was strategic on his side not to communicate the date. Because uh, as you recall, there is still an issue of his wife who is now uh, at large, and he is still very much uh, aggrieved with that state of affairs. And what he is trying to do now at, at political level is that perhaps he may not leave power without securing a deal for the wife, or even for himself, because he's also not off the hook necessarily, because he still also has to answer questions around his phone number that was used in the grind scene. So basically, I think he, he's still holding on to power so that he can try to see whether he can have a deal or of some sort around himself and, and his wife. Uh, for purposes of protecting them while, while, while he has lost power. But otherwise, the, the, the fact that he has lost the political power, politically speaking, uh, is clear. And I think now he just want to manage a few things during this transition. And, and mainly that, that is a matter around his prosecution and the prosecution of his wife. Well, let me bring it to Professor Pegim Gomezulu. Maybe f- let me flip the coin around. And maybe ask the question of the possibility of uh, the police force being overly politicized in Lesotho. 
Do you think this issuing of the arrest warrant to current wife, Maesaya Tabani, is legitimate? Or you think it could be political targeting? I'm just making speculations there that are unverified, not really uh, clear. But I just want to be balanced in this conversation in asking that question, Professor Mkomezul. No, thank you very much, my brother. No, obviously, uh, we cannot rule out uh, any political influence. Uh, we know for sure that uh, the politics uh, in Lesotho revolves around the allegiance of the police and the allegiance of the army, and they normally take different roads. As you recall that um, when there was a problem a couple of years back, uh, the police and the army were involved. And then we also recall that um, uh, Mabarankwe uh, Mahao was subsequently assassinated, and then, of course, there was also a speculation that a number of people might have been involved in that. So having said all of that, I think that uh, on the other side, there is legitimacy in what the police force is doing. Because we have a case of murder, which murder has not been uh, finalized. And therefore, you have to look at all the possible avenues in trying to find the answers uh, to this particular issue. Because when uh, Lipolelo was uh, assassinated, not just killed, assassinated uh, two days before uh, Prime Minister Tom Tabana was inaugurated, that, of course, raised a number of questions as to why was she killed and then, of course, by whom and for what reason. So those are some of the questions that remained unanswered. So now, if there is a link that uh, you may uh, find that uh, Messiah might have had something to do with it, then, of course, it brings in uh, the current uh, Prime Minister, Tom Tabane, in the fray. That is why then uh, the police commissioner had to invite him to come in and present his side of the story as to what does he know about all of this, which was fair in a way. So I would say as much as politics cannot be ruled out, but on this one, I think that uh, the police are doing what they are supposed to do as per their portfolio. And that was Professor Bekim Gomezulu and Professor Holonyane speaking to Benjamin Mushatama. Women battling medical or sexual problems such as vaginal dryness, sexual dysfunction and urinary incontinence can now breathe a sigh of relief thanks to a breakthrough technology called the Orgasm Shot or O-Shot. The O-Shot is a non-invasive treatment that aims to alleviate female sexual dysfunction by extracting what is known as PRP or platelet-rich plasma from a woman's own blood and injecting it directly directly into the vaginal area. Developed by Dr. Charles Reynolds in the U.S., the procedure has only been around since 2011. Dr. Nicole Canaris is an aesthetic doctor and one of the few doctors in South Africa who have been trained to administer the O-Shot. The O-Shot is actually the orgasm shot. And it's a very simple procedure. It's a medical procedure, non-surgical, And it involves taking our blood, or the patient's blood, spinning it in a centrifuge, extracting the platelets, and then we re-inject these into the vagina and the clitoris. What are some of the benefits of the O-shot? So it's a regenerative procedure. When you inject platelets or platelet-rich plasma, it stimulates regeneration of the area. So there's increased blood flow. It helps with collagen for tightening. It helps with sensation. It helps the glands secrete more lubrication. It tightens the muscles so that you don't have any leakage of urine. And it makes you more sensitive, both in the clitoris and the vagina. So patients are able to have more frequent orgasms. Or for those patients who've never had an orgasm, actually feel something and have one for the first time.
Do you need to have a sexual or medical problem to get the O shot? So, yes, I guess you do have to have some sort of a problem or a decline in your sexual health. If you've got urinary incontinence, as we mentioned, which would be a medical problem or lichen sclerosis, which is also a medical problem which affects the skin of the vagina. Or if you're basically just wanting more of a boost, you've maybe able to have an orgasm externally, but never during penetration. You want more sensation. You want a longer orgasm more frequent orgasms, multiple orgasms, then yes, maybe this is something you could consider even if you are healthy and you do have a good love life. How exactly is this procedure done, doctor? Talk us through some of the steps. So you come in, we ensure that you're a healthy patient, that you've taken no aspirin and dispirin. We literally take your blood like a blood test and we spin that in a machine for four minutes. This separates the different blood components. So your red blood cells will go to the bottom and then your platelets come to the top. And it's this platelet-rich plasma that we inject in certain areas down there to enhance or help with certain conditions. So we inject it into the clitoris and internally into the vagina to help with sensation and sensitivity. And how long does the procedure take? The numbing is usually on for about 20 minutes, and this is just numbing cream. And the procedure itself is not longer than five minutes. So it's a quick procedure. It's in and out. We'd call it a lunchtime procedure. and No downtime. Javi will be happy to know it. And yeah, simple. When will the patients start feeling the effects of the shot? So some of our patients feel effects as early as a week after the treatment. But because of its regenerative capacity, it takes time to build that blood flow, those nerves, and it can take up to three months for the best results to be seen. Also, how long will they feel the effects for? So it will last 18 months to three years. It's variable. So as your body ages, because all of our organs age, our eyes, our skin, our vaginas. So as you're aging in the next three years, you're going to have a decline. So that's why you'd probably need another shot. Are there no risks associated with getting the O shot? So firstly, we want to say this is a medical procedure. It needs to be done by doctors that are trained appropriately to do it. And the O shot is actually a trademark. So it's owned by a doctor in America, Dr. Charles Runnels. The doctors that belong to this group are very well trained in this procedure. But as I mentioned, we want a healthy patient. We want a patient that doesn't have a history of blood cancers and or gynae cancers. We want them to have had a normal pap smear. And then in the area, it can be area specific. So say we've used a local anesthetic cream and the patient is allergic to that anesthetic cream, then that would be a risk. But we're using such fine needles that there's no injury to tissue. And then we're using your own blood products. So there's no risk for allergies because it's your own tissue. There's no risk for infections because once again, it's your own blood. So it is quite a safe procedure. How many injections does one need per procedure? So usually we do two injections, one in the clitoris and one in the vagina, but it depends what we're treating. So if you're treating a dry vagina with low lubrication for your postmenopausal women that have no estrogen, then we'd obviously inject a little bit more. For those who are afraid of needles, doctor, is the old shot painful? I can tell you now that most of my patients say they feel like a two out of 10. So very little pain. We use numbing cream, we use ice, the needles we use are miniature, like maybe the size of a hair. So very little is felt. For someone listening to us right now and would like to get an O shot or know more about this procedure, how can they get in touch with you? So we're quite active on social media, on Instagram, and my handle is at Dr. Kanara. So it's D-R-K-A-N-A-R-I-S. And we're located in Eden Meadows Shopping Center in Greenstone. 
You can call us on 011-524-0991 for more info. And before I let you go, what else do you think women out there need to know about the O-Shot? Only that it really changes lives and it really can enhance relationships. I think part of being in a relationship is your sexual health. And there's a lot of women. One in 10 women never have an orgasm in their life. And five in 10 women struggle with sexual dysfunction, whether it be a low libido or pain during sex or never having an orgasm. And that's a high amount. Usually these women literally suffer in silence or they were told, no, there's a psychological cause. Now there's something that we can actually do to sort out the physical environment. So to fix you naturally, it's an all natural treatment. It's using your own blood products. And if it's done by the right person in the right way, it's safe and effective. And that was Dr. Nicole Canaris, aesthetics doctor and one of the few doctors in South Africa who have been trained to administer the O-Shot, talking to Elizabeth Ledicha. Welcome to Change Your Game on Channel Africa, the African perspective. We are coming to you from Johannesburg, right here in South Africa. I'm Asanda Beda, your host. Change Your Game, the program that promotes open discussion and social dialogue as we highlight real issues in the African entrepreneurship ecosystem. Trevor Mumba now joins us in studio to talk about his entrepreneurial and personal journey. Welcome to Change Your Game, Trevor. Thank you so much. Um, It's an honor to be here. Palesa Mukubong, who's a designer. Welcome, Palesa, to Change Your Game. Thank you. Your role at the fourth annual Fashion Without Borders event? I just know that I need to arrive and, and, <laughs> okay. and do my part and do it really, really well. Yeah. And now it's time for your latest economics news. Here is Nosilha Zuma. Thank you, Samara. Good evening. South Africa's power utility, ASCOM, has confirmed that it will implement Stage 2 load shedding from 9 o'clock tonight to 6 o'clock tomorrow morning. In a statement, the power utility says this is due to system constraints and depleting emergency resources. ASCOM says the risk of load shedding tomorrow into the weekend remains high. It has advised consumers to continue using electricity sparingly. South African holding company Autopex has paid their workers the balance of their January salaries. This is according to Labour Union's Tatau State Bus Operator Autopex, which runs bus services, Translux and city-to-city buses, had paid the workers half of their salary last week. Autopex is a subsidiary of state-owned entity Prasa, which has been placed under administration following claims of corruption and maladministration. Satau spokesperson Zanele Sabela says Autopex received the balance this morning. We are very pleased um, that management has actually delivered on its promise. Um, so uh, we look forward to them engaging us on how to solve these problems so as to avoid a recurrence next month and months after that. Telecommunications firm MTN Group says it will invest 1.6 billion US dollars in Nigeria after it resolved a legal case with the government. In a statement issued last on Wednesday, the company said it planned a capital investment program of 1.6 billion US dollars over three years in its network and operations in Nigeria.
Google has temporarily closed all of its offices in China, Hong Kong and Taiwan as a result of the coronavirus. Other tech giants, including Amazon and Microsoft, have also taken action to protect staff from infection. This week, global corporations have been shutting operations in China and advising overseas staff not to visit the country. Google says it is stopping staff traveling to China and Hong Kong, while employees currently in the country have been advised to leave as soon as possible and then work from home for a minimum of two weeks. Google has four offices in mainland China, although the company has not said how many staff it employs there. And finally, Green South Africa says considering current planting trends, the country should see a good milli harvest just like in the previous season. An agricultural economist is at Grain SA Ikacheng Maluleke says the expected harvest should yield about 12 million tons. Maluleke says it's still too early to predict whether mealies that have been planted outside of normal times could be hit by frost. She also said that they do not foresee any drastic price increases. What is currently happening with international prices is that we see that prices are moving sideways, if you can put it as such. And this is mainly because of uncertainties around production or production prospects, as well as the current trade environment. So looking at international prices, we do not foresee any drastic upward movement of prices. However, there are some weather concerns in, for instance, South America, which might be a bit supportive to international prices. For your financial indicators, the US dollar is trading at 360.88 Nigerian Nara, 10.66 Botswana Bula, at 99.65 Kenyan Shilling, and at 14.58 Zambian Guacha. In BRICS currencies, one US dollar will cost you 4.20 Brazilian Rule, 62.47 Russian Ruble, 71.17 Indian Rupee, 6.93 Chinese Yuan, and at 14.58 South African Rand. The US dollar is also trading at 76 pence to the British pound and at 90 cents to the euro. Looking at commodities, gold is trading at $1,579 and platinum at $973 per ounce. The price of Brent crude oil is $59.23 a barrel. For Channel Africa News, I'm Nosile Zuma. Now it's time for your latest sport. Here's Neto Chimani. Thank you, Samara. A very good afternoon, sport fans. Starting off with cricket news. The Proteus one-day international ODI team will assemble in Cape Town this weekend to begin preparations for the three-match Momentum ODI series against England from the 4th to the 9th of February 2020. The squad sees several new faces such as Lutosi Pamla, Kyle Verane and John Fortuyn who lit up the local limited overs domestic leagues throughout the past season and impressed selectors enough to give them a chance 
chance against the reigning world champions. Their inclusion will serve as an opportunity to see the value they can bring as the team begins its building blocks towards the 2023 ICC World Cup, while also giving senior players such as Fav Duplessis and Kahiso Rabada much needed rest after a very busy 12 months of cricket. On to football news. South Africa's national women's under-20 football team is a match away from qualifying for the next round of the 2020 FIFA Women's Under-20 World Cup qualifiers. Basitzana will host Zambia's Copa Belt Queens in the second leg match this Saturday at Orlando Stadium, south of Johannesburg. Kickoff is at 1500 p.m. Central African time. Basitzana hold a 2 lead going into Saturday's encounter and coach Jabulile Baloyi knows they need to continue with the winning momentum of the first leg match to ensure an easy passage into the next round. That would be the attitude that we need to send to the players, that uh, it's not over yet. It's just still our first uh, hurdle of many other hurdles to go over until we realize they dream of qualifying for the World Cup. And uh, it's up to us. We can either make it or break it or break ourselves by taking things for for granted. And what now we would be looking at is uh, making sure that every player that is part of the team understands exactly how we want to play, how the coaches are are expecting them to play and the kind of tactics that we would like to apply going forward and also uh, reminding our players that not every game is the same and not every game needs the same approach and not every player is going to be playing. In tennis news, defending champion Novak Djokovic rallied past his arch-rival Roger Federer in straight sets 7-6, 6-4, 6-3 in the semi-finals of the Australian Open 2020. With his victory, Djokovic continued his 100% semi-finals record in Melbourne, winning eight matches at this stage in as many matches. During the course of three sets, the seven-time champion recorded fewer winners than his opponent. While Federer Federer fired 46 winners. Djokovic managed to hit 31 winners. Here is Djokovic reflecting on the match. Well, it could have definitely gone a different way if uh, he used those break points. Um, he started off really well. I was uh, pretty nervous at the beginning. And, uh, you know, uh, I just want to say uh, respect to, to Roger for coming out tonight. He was obviously hurt. He obviously uh, was hurt and uh, wasn't at his best, even close to his best in, in terms of movement. And, uh, you know, respect for coming out and trying his best all the way through. In the other men's semi-final, Alexander Zverev takes on Dominic Thiem on Friday. On to Athletics News. South Africa... Athletic South Africa ASA President Alex Kosana has explained why the Olympic champion Kastosimenya is in the 2020 Tokyo Olympic preliminary squad. ASA announced a preliminary squad of 63 athletes in November. That includes Semenya and the injured wait for Nikerk. Semenya is still banned from competing by the World Athletics governing body IAAF. Well, this is not the right platform to comment about Casta. The matter of Casta is still pending. That's all what I can say from the court from the court of arbitration in Switzerland. 
because the matter is pending, there is no decision. The decision can be positive or the decision can be negative on her side. So it will depend. So we have to include her up until there is finality on the matter. And finally, in rugby news, the Stormers coach John Dobson has announced his team to take on the Hurricanes this Saturday in the opening round of the 2020 Super Rugby season. Dobson has named a very strong team that includes the Welsh International Centre, Jamie Roberts, who will make his debut after signing with the Western Cape franchise earlier this month. The team also includes a 10 capped Springboks, including seven players who won the World Cup last year. Team is Dylan Leith, Sergio Pearson, Ronell, Jamie Roberts, Sibella Sinatla, Damien Willems, Herschel Jainti, Sia Khaleesi is the captain, Peter Steph de Toy, Chris Van Sahel, Sama Marat, Bongi Munambi, Stephen Kitzoff. And then on the bench, Scarlett Tabeni, Ali Famark, Will Kolo, David Mies, and Ernst van Rijn, Yahanda Toy, Godlem Assembler, and Rikas Pretorius. This is Channel Africa. From an African perspective, for Channel Africa Sport, I'm Neto and ETO Chamani. This is Africa Digest. And that wraps up Africa Digest for this hour. Be sure to join us again from 1900 hours Central African time for more news from an African perspective. From myself, Samora Mangesi, producer Lebo Muswewu, technical producer Revelino Ibrahim. It's good night for now.